Hi, this is Scott from Church History Matters. As we near the end of this series, we want to hear your questions about the practice of plural marriage in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Next week on our final episode of this series, we will be honored to have with us a special guest to help us respond to your questions, Dr. Brian Hales, an author and scholar on all things related to polygamy in the church. He is endlessly insightful on this topic. So please do yourself and other listeners a favor by submitting your thoughtful questions. You can submit them anytime up to June 22, 2023 to podcasts at scripturecentral.org. Let us know your name, where you're from, and try to keep each question as concise as possible when you email them in. That helps out a lot. Okay, now on to the episode. In 1852, only eight years after Joseph Smith's death, church leaders in Utah publicly announced to the astonished world what some had suspected, that Latter-day Saints did indeed practice the principle of plural marriage. But now that it was out there in the open, it could be openly challenged and attacked. And it was, relentlessly, for decades. In today's episode of Church History Matters, We'll walk through the history of how plural marriage came to a rocky end under the draconian legislation and crushing pressure of the United States government. We'll dive into the George Reynolds trial, President Wilford Woodruff's manifesto, the Reed Smoot trials and second manifesto, the resignation of two members of the Quorum of the Twelve over this, the beginning of the FLDS church, and more. I'm Scott Woodward, and my co-host is Casey Griffiths. And today we dive into our fifth episode in this series, dealing with plural marriage. Now let's get into it. Hello, Casey. How we doing? Good. How are you doing, Scott? Good. Good to see you. We're hoping we're going to wrap up our discussion on plural marriage by talking about after Joseph Smith's death. So, Scott, why don't you give us a recap of what we talked about last time, and then we'll dive into today's topic. Yeah, so last time we talked about the struggles with plural marriage that Emma Smith had, very real struggles, but that she and Joseph eventually came to a workable resolution with that principle, it appears. Yeah. The last eight months of his life, there was no further plural marriages entered into, and for all intents and purposes, the way that Brian Hills tells the story is... They seem to live a fairly monogamous marriage, that last portion of Joseph's life. Uh, But his life was brought to an abrupt end because of plural marriage. That's not the only reason that factored into his death, but it was a primary reason. It led to some apostates turning against Joseph, chief of which was William Law, and uh, that's going to lead to a conspiracy against his life. And we talked a little bit about what happened there. We intend to talk a great deal more about the martyrdom in future episodes. But Joseph himself said of the principle of plural marriage, according to Brigham Young's recollection, I shall die for it. And so this is a principle Joseph would pay for with his life. And it did what DNC 132 said it would do. And that was to try the faith of the saints like Abraham. Yeah. So that's something that doesn't end, right? We want to talk about the next phase today, what happens next. We know that in Nauvoo, Joseph marries 30-something wives, and the practice is going to spread slowly at first. And by the time Joseph dies, we're going to have about 
29 other men and about 50 women who have entered into plural marriage in addition to Joseph and his wives. And then when the saints enter Salt Lake Valley, we want to talk about that today and what kind of happens between Joseph Smith and the end of plural marriage. That's where we're going to try and go. And we're covering a lot of ground today, more than we have in the other podcasts. But we felt like the big points to hit are the beginnings of plural marriage and then the end of plural marriage in the church. Just like you said, plural marriage is not a public practice in Nauvoo for obvious reasons. It's a factor in Joseph Smith's death. And the people that are practicing plural marriage when Joseph Smith is killed are worried that the same thing could happen to them. And so the practice remains private until 1852 when they announce it publicly. Who announces it? Yeah. And that's something we could talk about, too, is Orson Pratt is the one that announces it. He gets up in a meeting held in the Salt Lake Tabernacle, August 1852. He says, it is quite unexpected to me, brothers and sisters, to be called upon to address you this afternoon and still more so to address you upon the principle which has been named, namely a plurality of wives. Ooh, I think that talk got everybody's attention. <laughs> <laughs> With that, to be a fly on the wall, right? Yeah, I think everybody was listening to that talk. <laughs> yeah, you're looking at the woodwork and all of a sudden the plurality of wives is set over the pulpit. Yeah, wow. He says, the congregation is aware that the Latter-day Saints have embraced the doctrine of plurality of wives, but it is new ground to the inhabitants of the United States. And... That's a big understatement yeah. to start with. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that they choose Orson Pratt. Orson Pratt is assigned, hmm. it appears, by Brigham Young to introduce the principle. And that's interesting given his history with plural marriage in Nauvoo hmm. a little bit earlier. Yeah, so tell us about Orson Pratt in Nauvoo. Orson had some serious issues with plural marriage in Nauvoo. First of all, his wife Sarah Pratt was one of the women that was involved with John C. Bennett. Mm-hmm. And this is devastating to Orson to find out. He's on a mission in England while a lot of this is happening. And then he comes home and finds out about what's happened between his wife, Sarah, and John C. Bennett. And then on top of that, Joseph Smith takes him aside and basically says, look, this doctrine of plurality of wives doesn't have anything to do with John C. Bennett, but it is true. It's something that the Lord's revealed to me. And Orson struggles. Like, he leaves Nauvoo. There's worries for a while that he may have been thinking about harming himself. They eventually find him and bring him back. He's excommunicated and then is rebaptized a couple months later and placed back into the Quorum of the Twelve. In fact, this will play a role in succession in the presidency down the line. Orson would have been president of the church when Brigham Young died, but Brigham Young reorganized the Twelve based on continuous service, and Orson had that gap of several months when he wasn't a church member or a member of the Quorum of the Twelve before he was rebaptized and reinstated into the Twelve. So, It's an interesting choice that they ask Orson to do this, but there's also good reasons, too. He's incredibly eloquent. He's well-spoken. Brigham Young trusts him and thinks that he could do the best job introducing this. And it doesn't seem like he had much advance notice, right? He says, it's quite unexpected to me to be called upon to address you this afternoon. (laughs) He's so good. He can, at a moment's notice, stand up and announce one of the most shocking announcements made in the church Yeah, and it it seems like the pressure to do this had been gradually building. Utah, at this point, is a territory of the United States, and even though Brigham Young is the governor, a lot of the territorial functions related to the federal government are carried out by outside people. And the judges that get sent to Utah aren't exactly the cream of the crop. I don't think Utah was the plum assignment. (laughs) But it's a guy named Perry E. Brockus Mm. who gets sent as a federal judge to Utah. And he presses the saints on this question until they feel like, let's just announce it on our own terms. 
Uh, he gives a speech in September 1851 where he calls upon the Mormon women to be virtuous, which is apparently a veiled reference to plural marriage. Mm. And he and other federal officials start reporting to newspaper reporters in the East that the saints were practicing plural marriage and defending the principle of plural marriage. So it's starting to leak out. Yeah. It's starting to leak out through the wrong sources. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing they're still frightened over what had happened to Joseph Smith with this. Mm-hmm. But at this point, you know, it's one of those things where let's get ahead of the story. Let's control the narrative. And they announce it. Yeah. Tons of fallout from it. But Orson also in the talk gives a pretty good rundown of some of the primary reasons for why they are practicing plural marriage. And so what Orson is saying here could be a good companion to Section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants. He covers some of the same ground, Mm. but he also brings up some new points that we might consider really quickly. Like what? He ties plural marriage back to the promises made to Abraham, this idea of eternal posterity and lineage and fulfilling the covenants that were made to the ancient Old Testament patriarchs is the first and foremost one. So that's not new content there yet. Uh, He's yeah rephrasing section 132. Yeah. Does he give any, any other reasons? Actually, he takes kind of an unconventional route, too. And I think it was because, in part, Judge Brockus was accusing them of being immoral that he talks about how plural marriage was designed to prevent immorality. Yeah, that's new. Yeah. He says immorality is to be prevented in the way the Lord devised in ancient times. That is by giving his faithful servants a plurality of wives by which a numerous and faithful posterity can be raised up and taught in the principles of righteousness and truth. And then he goes on to say, after they fully understood those principles that were given to the ancient patriarchs, if they keep not the law of God, but commit adultery and transgression, let their names be blotted out from under heaven, and they have no place among the people of God. So he actually argues that plural marriage is designed to prevent immorality. It's the same system that's been given to the patriarchs. Again, he's centering all this in the Bible. One of Orson Pratt's most famous speeches he gives after this is called, Does the Bible Sanction Polygamy? Mm -hmm. And he's doing a good job scripturally saying, yep, that's one of the reasons too. Like I said, Orson Pratt is an interesting choice. He and Brigham Young at various points are going to have conflict, but I think Brigham respected Orson's ability to defend the faith. There's a one point where Brigham Young and Orson Pratt have had their conflicts, but Brigham Young says if Brother Orson were chopped up into inch pieces, each piece would cry out that Mormonism was true. So he shows a ton of trust in Orson. Yeah. He's not questioning his loyalty. Yeah. But they didn't always see eye to eye on doctrine, that's for sure. Yeah. Orson gives another talk in 1869 called Celestial Marriage where he reiterates some of these principles. And, and really on that point of preventing immorality, he says what happens in societies that don't allow for plural marriage is that there's always going to be an abundance of females to males. He makes this case. I don't know if it's defensible today statistically, but he makes the case that because of death rates are higher among men and by the time you get to marriageable age, there's a surplus of females to males. And if they are not brought into a wholesome marriage, which plural marriage can provide, then they usually end up either old maids or prostitutes. It's a a pretty provocative talk, but he's trying to defend this idea like this is the opposite of immorality. That's his point. This is the opposite of immorality. This is where a man devotes himself to a woman and takes care of her and helps raise children with her and is committed to her to the end, right? It's not, this isn't a case where, in fact, I think in this 1852 talk, he said at the very beginning that he said, It is not, as many have supposed, a doctrine embraced by the Latter-day Saints to gratify the carnal lusts and feelings of man. That is not the object of the doctrine. And then he goes into those reasons that you've 
articulated. So this is not what it looks like from the outside or what the the spin masters would want to make it look like is happening among the Latter-day Saints. Yeah. It's actually honorable men and women joining together and committing to and be true to each other and to raise the families together and to protect each other's virtue and uh, all the things you would have in a normal marriage. Very interesting. Yeah, and he makes another interesting point, which is the majority of the human race does practice plural marriage at this point in time. I don't know if that's the case today, but according to one study that was carried out in the 19th century, that probably was true at that point in time, that monogamy was the less common practice than plural marriage, and Orson Pratt was basically tying their practice into that as well, which is an interesting case to take too. Yeah. Another thing that happens is kind of the peak of Orson Pratt's career as an apologist for plural marriage is in 1870, J.P. Newman, who's the chaplain of the United States Senate, challenges him to a public debate. Bad idea. (laughs) So they debate over three days in the Salt Lake Tabernacle, and they fire back and forth at each other, but... Even though both sides at the end kind of claims victory, the general consensus is that poor Newman got his clock cleaned by Orson Pratt. (laughs) (laughs) There's one Catholic writer, for instance, that writes, Newman, whatever his qualifications as chaplain of the Senate or his merits as an order, proved neither a scripture scholar nor an apt debater. (laughs) And another newspaper reporter says, someone carrying guns other than Dr. Newman will have to be sent out missionarying among the Mormons. (laughs) I pity the man who debates Orson Pratt. Yeah. <laughs> so plural marriage is out there yeah. and everybody knows. And before we get into the next part of the story, I think we wanted to take a minute and talk about what are the numbers? I always have students ask me, did most people practice plural marriage in the church? How did it work? We're drawing some information here from the Gospel Topics essay, but they draw from scholars like Catherine Danes and Jesse Embry, Lowell C. Benyon, and a few others. So here's what we've got the breakdown. Most families that practice plural marriage, in fact, two-thirds is the figure they cite, were only two wives at a time. Hmm. So when we think of people like Brigham Young or Heber C. Kimball who have multiple wives, I think Heber C. Kimball is the record holder. Oh, how many does he have? What's the record? Oh, gosh, I'm trying to remember. I'm Googling it right now. Okay, you're looking it up. I'll keep going while you're looking that up. About two-thirds of marriages that they're defending here, these plural marriages, are two wives. Yeah. And another thing to keep in mind is that the 1852 laws on marriage passed in Utah have a fairly generous range for divorce. So divorces were fairly easily allowed. I mean, that's going to sound bad that divorces were easy in Utah, but I think they also recognized how difficult this was. Yeah, normally we're against divorce, right? We try to work it out, try to make it work before we would ever encourage divorce. But that's different during this time. Yeah. Why is that? It was partially the way the church approached it and the way the laws of Utah were written. According to almost every source we have, this is a system that's very directly administered by leaders of the church. And they were fairly generous in granting a divorce. If a person entered into plural marriage and they didn't feel good about it, especially a woman, they would allow them to get a divorce fairly easily. Without the social stigma attached to that, which is pretty unique. There was no, no social stigma attached to a divorce if she wanted it. Yeah. One of the advantages of the system that they pointed out, too, is that, well, almost all women married, and so did a large percentage of men. And most people were in 
stable relationships. It was like marriages today. You had a wide spectrum ranging from really happy marriages to unhappy marriages. Yeah. There were some people like Emmeline B. Wells who struggled with it. Emmeline B. Wells is a prominent church leader, eventually becomes the Relief Society president. She was pretty candid in saying she felt lonely as a plural wife. Mm. Then there were other people, like I wrote a book on Joseph F. Merrill, this apostle who grew up in a polygamous household. His dad was Mariner Merrill, who had eight wives. Mm -hmm. And when he was asked about it, he said, I thought it was a good system. Mm. Like my mom didn't feel lonely. She was fairly independent. She had her own farm and property that she took care of. And I felt like her and my dad really loved each other. A large number of Mariner's kids go on to get PhDs. Joseph is the first native Utah to get a PhD, and he has a lot of brothers and sisters. Now, that's probably the best case scenario, but it seems like, yeah, it was fairly atypical. So there's a spectrum. There's yeah. a spectrum, just like you said, with marriages today. You wouldn't highlight a super sad marriage and say, therefore, marriage is a bad system because there's always going to be great marriages. There's always going to be those who are handled irresponsibly or selfish, or neglectful in whatever way. So it's not that plural marriage itself was either good or bad. It was as good as the people who were involved made it, is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, and there's some really harrowing stuff out there, like about Annie Tanner and a few others that Mm. had a terrible experience with plural marriage, but that has to be measured against other people that really upheld the principle and thought that it was good and felt good about it. Now, the average trends that they showed were that plural marriage generally declined over time. And when we see a spike, that's usually when the United States government was intervening, trying to stop them from practicing plural marriage, that everybody would run out and enter into one just to (laughs) indicate that they could or... Spite the government. Yeah, stick it to the man, I guess you'd say. Yeah, so is it... I'm remembering from the Gospel Topics essay that in 1857, about half of those living in Utah are somehow involved as husband, wife, or child in plural marriage household, correct? Yeah. And then by 1870, it's gone down by almost half. Is that right? Yeah. By 1870, the numbers cited are 25 to 30 percent of the population lived in polygamous households. And again, this is as a husband, wife, or child. That's the best way to kind of calculate it as we go. So this is never like the majority. This is never the way that everybody's living in Utah. This is its peak. It was close to half, Yeah, but never the majority. Yeah, and that's probably the high point. And like we said, Catherine Danes wrote this great book called More Wives Than One, mm-hmm. where she just basically took a single community, Manti, Utah, and studied the records that were there. And she showed that the number of plural marriages was always continuously on the decline. And then there'd be a spike when a new law came out or a new effort was made by the government to try and end plural marriage. Mm. So the majority of the church never practiced it. And without outside interference, it's interesting to think about what might have happened to it if it was left alone. (laughs) It's like the saints kept upholding it because of this outside pressure. But in general, they trended towards monogamy. I don't think their society was ever really strategically built to accommodate plural marriage. So they trended towards monogamy in their own life. Yeah, it seems like with each generation, yeah, it was was starting to become, that's what my parents and my grandparents did, but the next generations were not following suit, at least not wholesale. It wasn't growing, it was declining, which which is interesting. Yeah, what would have happened? What would have happened had government just stayed out of it? (laughs) Yeah. Should we talk about the government's intervention? What, What did happen? Why did the government get involved? Let's talk about that. Oh, wait, by the way, Heber C. Kimball had 43 wives. Just had to get that out there. There you go.
most people are aware, but the Republican Party, founded in 1856, is founded with the goal of eradicating the twin relics of barbarism, which are slavery and polygamy. That's right. And four years after the party's founded, we get the first Republican president, who's Abraham Lincoln. But as most people know, Lincoln had a lot on his plate to deal with. And so he doesn't do a lot when it comes to plural marriage. In fact, the most famous exchange with the Latter-day Saint when Lincoln's in office, according to T.B. Stenhouse, who's a reporter, who's a Latter-day Saint, he asked about, this is June 1863, he asked Abraham Lincoln about his intentions for the Mormons. According to T.B. Stenhouse, Lincoln said, Stenhouse, when I was a boy on the farm in Illinois, there was a great deal of timber on the farm which had to be cleared away. Occasionally, we'd come to a log which had fallen down that was too hard to split, too wet to burn, and too heavy to move, so we just plowed around it. You go back and tell Brigham Young, if he will let me alone, I will let him alone. (laughs) So Lincoln's the first Republican president, but his position is basically, I got too much to deal with right now. Wait, 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 wait. So 1856, the Republican Party is founded with the aim of eradicating the twin relics of barbarism, slavery and polygamy, Mm -hmm. and yet the first Republican president says... I'm okay leaving them alone if they'll just leave me alone. That's interesting. Yeah, and Latter-day Saints really love to quote that story, and I think the story's true. I mean, we've got several other settings where Lincoln uses that whole tree that can't be cleared away analogy. Mm -hmm. At the same time, too, the whole picture is that the Republican Party, even though its biggest concern is the Civil War, also hasn't forgotten about the Saints and plural marriage. First law that they pass is passed in the middle of the Civil War in 1862. It's called the Morrill Act. And this levies a $500 fine and five years of imprisonment if a person is caught living in a polygamous relationship. Yeah. But I don't think this one really goes anywhere, does it? No. This this had no teeth, right, as a policy. It was in the middle of the Civil War. There's no federal officers to enforce this. So in some ways, it's more of a statement than it is a law that's enforced. But it's definitely saying we see you polygamists and we're coming for you. Yeah. With slavery and polygamy, it's just a matter of priority, right? They tackle slavery first. And once that's settled, that's when it seems like the pressure just is laid on hard and heavy coming after plural marriage, wouldn't you say? Yeah. So you get the 62 Act, Moral Bigamy Act, and then the Civil War ends in, what, 65? Mm-hmm. And then what happens? Tell us the next legislation. It's like for a couple of years, they're concerned with Reconstruction in the wake of the Civil War. Right. But then that becomes naughty and twisted, and they're not making headway there, and so they turn their attention back to plural marriage mm-hmm. and start to pass increasingly stringent laws like... A lot of the saints, we should mention, did not think that this was legal, right. that the First Amendment of the Constitution, free exercise of religion, allowed them to live the law of plural marriage. And so the next step that they take is the Poland Law, which is in 1874, and that's designed specifically to take apart Utah's judicial system. So a lot of the judges in Utah were Latter-day Saints who interpreted the Constitution the same way and wouldn't prosecute a person practicing plural marriage. So the next step is we've got to get them out of the judicial system. Mm. Another irony here is that women were granted the right to vote fairly early on in Utah. But these anti-polygamy legislations are eventually going to take that away because women didn't vote against the church. (laughs) Women voted in general in favor of the church and people wondered what's going on here. Explicitly in favor of polygamy, right? Didn't they write a bunch of, didn't they sign a bunch of petitions and send them to to Washington, D.C., saying, we're not oppressed by plural marriage. Yeah. 
that was a major surprise for some in the East. But of course, that was interpreted as, well, that's what the Mormon men are making you say, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. But there were women that were in favor of this and they were making their voices known. Yeah. One of the ironies of plural marriage is that it did in some ways allow women some opportunities that they didn't have. Hmm. Because, you know, if you're a woman in the 19th century, you're especially a married woman with children. Your big concern is taking care of your kids. Plural marriage creates this kind of shared sisterhood system where you have some women that are able to excel in professions. Like Martha Hughes Cannon, the first woman elected to a state legislature, is a plural wife. Mm. She actually runs against her husband and beats him. (laughs) She's also a medical doctor. Ellis Shipp goes to med school. Some of the most important suffragettes, uh, women that agitate on behalf of women receiving the right to vote, are plural wives. Like Leonard Arrington said that Emmeline B. Wells would be known alongside Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony as one of the most important figures in securing women the right to vote if it hadn't been for the fact that she was a Latter-day Saint and a plural wife. Wow. And so it's way more complex. In fact, let me show you something. This is a statement Eliza R. Snow makes, okay? At a suffragette rally, she addresses the popular image of Latter-day Saint women And she says this, were we the stupid, degraded, heartbroken beings that we have been represented, silence might better become us. But as women of God, women filling high and responsible positions, performing sacred duties, women that stand not as dictators, but as counselors to their husbands and who in the purest, noblest sense of the refined womanhood are truly their helpmates. We don't only speak because we have the right, but justice and humanity demand that we should. Oh, wow. So they're pushing back against this image, and they're part of the fight, too. In fact, as time goes on, some of these laws, like the Edmonds Act passed in 1882, some of these are draconian. Like when we say the Constitution will hang by a thread, the saints saw this as way overstepping. The Edmonds Act makes unlawful cohabitation legal, excludes people from serving on juries, and denies them the right to vote or hold public office if they're practicing plural marriage. That is extreme stuff. And the next law that comes down the pike is going to be even more extreme. Yeah, that's the most crushing. You're talking about the Edmonds-Tucker Act, right? 1887? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that one's the most brutal. That one's the first law to come after the church as a corporation, right? Yeah. This isn't now just punishing those who practice plural marriage, but coming against the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as such, as a corporation. Mm -hmm. It disenfranchises them, unincorporates them, This is as heavy-handed as it gets, I think, in our nation's history Mm -hmm. of singling out one people and then legislating in a way to crush them to the ground. Yeah. For instance, the Edmonds-Tucker Act is going to make it so that you have to swear an anti-plural marriage oath even to vote, and it's going to take away the right of women to vote, and it's going to stop anyone who is Mormon from coming to Utah. They disenfranchise the Perpetual Immigration Fund cutting off funding for people to gather to Utah. But then the biggest whopper was the taking away of property, any property over, what, $50,000? Yeah. So that's coming after the temples. We got, what, Manti Temple, Logan Temple, and St. George are on the chopping block there with the Edmonds-Tucker Act. Mm -hmm. This is just intended to destroy and dismantle the church itself. Yeah. And we should mention that the saints fight back against the legality of these laws. Probably the most famous case is the George Reynolds trial, where... George Reynolds actually goes up against the Morrill Act, the first anti-polygamy act that's passed during the Civil War, as a test case. So 
George Reynolds is this nice, like, conservative guy <laughs> um, who, you know, he's modest, he's unassuming, he's a clerk who works for the first presidency and a bookkeeper, he's devout and faithful, but he's married to two women, and they get him to agree to serve as a test case. So he is asked in October 1874 if he'll agree to submit to the law so that they can take this out for a test drive and see if this actually holds up under the Constitution. They were pretty confident that this would not be held up as constitutional, right? Yeah. Hence the test case. Yeah, they feel really strongly that the First Amendment, the free exercise clause of the Bill of Rights, would protect them from what they saw as a religious obligation. Plural marriage was religious. In their mind, it was a commandment from God. Unfortunately, Reynolds' trial turns into a media circus, basically. They even drag his second wife, Amelia, while she's pregnant to the court, put her on the stand, and force her to admit that she's a plural wife, which was humiliating for her, difficult for her. Mm. J.G. Sutherland, who is arguing on behalf of Reynolds, argued Latter-day Saints believe that polygamy is a divine institution and they will be indebted for their highest happiness in another life to their fidelity and obedience to it in this. Nonetheless, George Reynolds loses the case and winds up going to the territorial penitentiary. In fact, this goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, which in 1879 upholds Reynolds' conviction, Mm. and that is a tough blow to the church because they're trying to reconcile this commandment with living the laws of the land, and part of their argument is we don't feel like these laws align with the other laws, that they're unconstitutional. And wasn't the, uh, the conclusion of those prosecuting saying that the First Amendment only protects religious belief but not religious conduct, not religious action? Yeah, there's a great book called Zion in the Courts by Ed Firmage, and I can't remember the name of his other author, but they basically interpreted the Supreme Court's decision as followed. They said, unless at least for some practices for the majority are protected by the First Amendment, the free exercise clause is redundant and devoid of practical content. That basically, the interpretation that you could draw from the Supreme Court's decision was that it's okay to believe whatever you want to believe, but you can't practice what you want to practice when it comes to your religious belief, Mm. which I don't think that's how the law would be interpreted today. When George Reynolds was asked what he thought of the decision, he said, I regard the decision a nullification of the Constitution so far as religious liberty is concerned. To say the Constitution simply grants freedom of religious opinion, but not the exercise of that opinion, is twaddle. Did he just drop the twaddle word? (laughs) Yeah, in the 19th century, you're serious if you're using the T word, right? (laughs) Woo! Calm down, George. Calm down. (laughs) That's about as spicy as George Reynolds got, as far as I can tell. (laughs) That's a bunch of twaddle, is what that is. Uh, Dang. Now, the good news is, while he's in prison, he has to spend 18 months living in penitentiaries in Nebraska and Utah. Mm. He actually writes the first concordance to the Book of Mormon while he's there. That's a good use of time. Yeah. You can still find this if you go to the DI, big old red (laughs) concordance, which isn't that, you know, useful today because we've got the whole thing digitized. But he makes good use of his time and he's a good guy. So Edmunds Tucker is really setting us up for Official Declaration 1 or the Manifesto and is an important part of the circumstances there. Scott, walk us through a little bit about the lead up to the manifesto. 
Yeah, so we've got the civil disobedience. Can we call it that? Where saints believe they still have legal recourse and they still have a way to continue to challenge these things in the courts during the 80s, the 1880s. And so they uh, are practicing plural marriage while trying to avoid arrest. And when 1887 happens with the Edmunds-Tucker Act, now much of church leadership is going to go underground, right? They're going to start to be hunted as fugitives by U.S. deputies. In fact, there's even, you can find these wanted posters still if you Google them. John Taylor, president of the church, George Q. Cannon, counselor, There's one I'm looking at now that says $800 reward to be paid for the arrest of John Taylor and George Q. Cannon. $500 for Cannon, $300 for Taylor. I don't know why Cannon was so much more valuable than the president of the church, but there you go. John Taylor, as president of the church during this time, he's going to go into exile in Kaysville, Utah. And he'll die there that same year, 1887, July 25th. Mm -hmm. So for two years after his death... The church is without a first presidency, so the Quorum of the Twelve is leading. Wilford Woodruff is the president of that quorum, assuming leadership during that interim period. So in April 1889, Wilford Woodruff is sustained. The first presidency is reorganized. He's now officially the president of the church, 1889. They've continued to appeal the case all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has officially ruled against them and upheld the Edmunds-Tucker Act as constitutional. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, many church leaders have been caught and put in prison. There's some great pictures. You should Google sometime, listeners. Check out some church leaders in the Stripes of Shame, George Q. Cannon and others in the Utah Territorial Prison arrested under the Edmunds-Tucker Act. And so 1890, Wilford Woodruff is considering all of this. We now have no more legal recourse. And the question is, what is to be done? Mm -hmm. So in September of 1890, Wilford Woodruff seeks divine guidance on this, about the path that should be pursued. And what we know as the manifesto was the result. I think maybe the best way to think about this is, what's our highest priority, right? Mm -hmm. Because we can't have it all. Either we can retain our determination to practice plural marriage and lose the temples, and lose much church leadership, many of the heads of households, be disincorporated, everything the Edmunds-Tucker Act was doing, undermine Zion, undermine the ordinances that are to be done in the temples, but hold on to polygamy, or let go of polygamy and retain the temples, retain church leadership and heads of households, retain the ordinances of salvation and exaltation. What is the most fundamental? What's the most indispensable? And that's when the revelation comes that Wilfred Woodruff later explains, actually about a year after the manifesto, he starts explaining, going on little speaking tours and starts explaining to people exactly what happened. Yeah. And I think, you know, even before he says something like, I'm under the necessity of acting for the temporal salvation of the church. Yeah. Some people have said this was politically motivated, this revelation, but President Woodruff gives the reasons why the revelation came. Mm. I would point out official declaration one doesn't look like the other sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. Wilford Woodruff is clear in stating it came as a result of revelation. He was told by God to do this. Yeah, it's probably important to point out that the official declaration itself is not the revelation, right? It's a declaration that revelation had been received and now I'm telling you about it. (laughs) It's In fact, when he comes back, his counselors know about it and then... About a week later, it was October, wasn't it, when the Quorum of the Twelve meet, and they sustain it, even though some of them are still wrestling with it a little bit, but they do sustain it. And then it's presented to the church in October 1890. 
And it kind of reads very much like uh, the government is listening, right? Mm -hmm. He says, for instance, I'll read directly from the declaration itself. He talks about how he had heard of a case where someone had used the endowment house in Salt Lake to perform a plural marriage ceremony, which was not authorized by him. And so he says, when I heard about that, I had the endowment house torn down without delay. And then he said, Inasmuch as laws have been enacted by Congress forbidding plural marriages, which laws have been pronounced constitutional by the court of last resort, that's the Supreme Court, we have pushed this thing all the way to the Supreme Court, and they have found the Edmunds Tucker Act constitutional. So I hereby declare my intention to submit to those laws and to use my influence with the members of the church over which I preside to have them do likewise. This is clearly because of what is happening in their external circumstance, right? Mm -hmm. We've done everything we can. We've done everything in our power. And there's nothing left for us to do legally other than submit. And so I declare my intentions to submit. Now, behind this are some revelations that he'll explain to church members later. But this first public announcement is very business, a proclamation of our intention to be good citizens of the United States of America. Yeah. And oof, this is tough stuff, right? But he makes the action. It's just as difficult to end plural marriage, I guess is a point we should make, as it was to begin plural marriage. Oh, yeah. This is a system that two and a half generations have defended. Yeah. He takes it very seriously, but he does basically say this is a revelation. I was commanded by God to do this. I had to act for the temporal salvation of the church. Yeah, he says this actually uh, on that day in his conference talk where this was read. He said, the Lord has required at our hands things that we were prevented from doing. And then he mentions this. He says, the Lord required us to build a temple in Jackson County. We were prevented by violence from doing it. The Lord has given us commandments concerning many things, and we have carried them out as far as we could. But when we cannot do it, we are justified. And then he said, the Lord does not require at our hands things that we cannot do. That alone is a pretty powerful principle, right? If you've been legitimately kept from keeping a commandment because of external circumstances, the Lord doesn't require that commandment. I'm thinking about many missionaries who had to come home early because of COVID-19. You shouldn't feel like a failure, right? External circumstances brought you home early. You served an honorable mission the best you could. Right. Or people who yearn to be married, but they can't because of external circumstances. Or married couples who want to have children, but they can't. The Lord does not require at our hands things that we cannot do. So that alone is a pretty powerful principle. But when you apply it to this situation, that's telling to see inside the heart of President Woodruff. And we should also say that not every member of the church just eagerly, wholeheartedly accepted this. The minutes of that general conference do say that it was sustained unanimously, mm -hmm. but it doesn't seem to clear up all confusion in the hearts of the Latter-day Saints, right? Right. Is this a temporary thing that we're just doing this to appease the government? Are we all going to go to Mexico, up to Canada? Was this just a political maneuver? Are we just giving a nod to the government so they look the other way and then we can do our own thing? Yeah. And Wilfred Woodruff, that's what begins his speaking tour the next year, where he begins then to explain... No, this was a revelation from the Lord. He immediately has to make a clarification, too. Like, right after the manifesto is issued, he says, this manifesto only refers to future marriages and does not affect past conditions. Mm. I did not, I could not, and I would not promise that you would desert your wives and children. This you cannot do in honor. Yeah. But the language of the manifesto, which is basically, we're going to comply with the law. If the law has been upheld by the highest court, we'll follow it, yeah. opens questions. Yeah. During the struggles with the federal government, some Latter-day Saints had moved to Canada. Some had moved to Mexico. And does the law apply to them? Because if you're in a country where it's not illegal to practice plural marriage, 
can you still practice plural marriage, including creating new plural marriages, yeah. is the question that comes up. Yeah, that's outside the U.S. jurisdiction. You could see people easily come to the conclusion that, yeah, that's fine, because this is all about the U.S. government, right? Yeah. Yeah, so lots of questions still left. Let me just highlight a few of the things that I think make it absolutely clear that this came by revelation. In fact, he actually says this in, uh, if you look in your official declaration in your Doctrine and Covenants, you'll notice there's these excerpts from three addresses that President Woodruff gave. Right. I'm on the second page of that, and he said, I have had some revelations of late, very important ones to me, and I'll tell you what the Lord has said to me. Let me bring to your minds what's termed the manifesto. He said, the Lord has told me to ask the Latter-day Saints a question. And he also told me that if they would listen to what I said to them and answer the question put to them by the spirit and power of God, they would all answer alike and they would all believe alike with regard to the matter. And then he says, here's the question. Which is the wisest course for the Latter-day Saints to pursue? To continue to attempt to practice plural marriage with the laws of the nation against it and the opposition of 60 millions of people and at the cost of the confiscation and loss of all the temples and the stopping of all the ordinances therein? both for the living and the dead, and the imprisonment of the First Presidency and the Twelve and the heads of families in the church, and the confiscation of personal property of the people, all of which of themselves would stop the practice of plural marriage, or, after doing and suffering what we have through our adherence to this principle, to cease the practice and submit to the law, and through doing so leave the prophets, apostles, and fathers at home, so that they can instruct the people and attend to the duties of the church, and also leave the temples in the hands of the saints, so that they can attend to the ordinances of the gospel, both for the living and the dead. Which course should we pursue? He said you should all, if you've got the Spirit of God, answer that question the same. Shall the work go on or shall it cease? He asks. And so that was really what this was about. Mm -hmm. The Lord showed me. The Lord told me. I've had revelations of late. The Lord, he goes on to say, showed me by vision and revelation what would have happened had we not stopped this. The Lord has manifested to us. I saw what would come to pass. I've had this spirit upon me for a long time. I'm still quoting from him. The God of heaven commanded me to do what I do. I wrote what the Lord told me to write. I'll tell you what was manifested to me just over and over again. Uh, evidence, this is not Wilford Woodruff buckling to external pressure. I mean, that, that's a criticism, isn't it? Some people say this just goes to show that this is just President Woodruff buckling to external pressure. Political pressure came and he conveniently got a revelation, right? Right. That basically the government was stiff arming him into that decision anyway. And so he's just capitulating to that and calling it revelation. No, absolutely. That's not what's happening. How do you respond to that, by the way, Casey? What would you say? I'll tell you my response in a second, but how do you respond to that? I've had students bring it up in class before. Did they just do this because of what the government did? And I'm like, they have never tried to cover that up. <laughs> yeah. That's in the announcement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wilford Woodruff was absolutely plain that he sought the revelation because of the pressure that was being placed on them. Yeah. He was open in every single way about saying, yeah, here's why I asked God if it was time for us to make a change. But this assumption that it just has to come out of nowhere just doesn't fit in with any revelations that the church has ever yeah, received. Ever. Yeah. Revelation is always born out of necessity. Yeah, I want to just say, like, what other kind of revelation is there than revelation in response to external circumstances, right? Yeah. Prophets don't operate in a timeless, circumstanceless vacuum. 
They live in time and space, and they receive revelations based upon external circumstances that they find themselves and their people in. That's what drives prophets to their knees again and again. And that's what got Wilford Woodruff to go before the Lord, as he said, is because of that. Yeah. Sometimes with my students, I'll say, to attack a prophet on that point, it's kind of like saying, the only reason that you asked the Lord about whether it was wise to marry the person that you did was because you were seriously dating them and you really liked them. You know, it was just the external circumstance of dating them seriously that made you seek a revelation. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. That's how it works, actually, is it's always external circumstances yeah. that then drive you to seek revelation. So, yeah, I think that's just an unfair attack. Yeah. L- like we mentioned, the manifesto, Official Declaration 1, says we're going to comply with the law, but it leaves open this thread that a lot of saints wonder about, which is what if it's not the law? Mm. And some of them just frankly, it seems, do think that this is a delaying tactic until the second coming or whatever. So during the decade after the manifesto, there's ambiguity. Plural marriage couldn't be stopped immediately. It gradually ends. In fact, most people don't realize this, but the last president of the church to openly practice plural marriage was Heber J. Grant, who's president of the church into the 1940s. He has three wives, two of whom die relatively young. So by the time he becomes president of the church, he is monogamous, but those are his wives. He believes and accepts them. You could argue we still accept it in principle today. But the first official Wait, declaration... Whoa, whoa. you got to go back to that. you got to go back to <laughs> What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, I bring this up with my classes. Who's the last president of the church to be sealed to more than one person? It's President Nelson, right? President Nelson's first wife, Dancil, passed away in 2005. A few years later, he met and married Wendy Watson. He sealed to both of them. Does that make him a practitioner of plural marriage? I mean, technically, yes. Whoa, whoa, wait. So you would say that is practicing plural marriage? Well, I mean, he sealed the two people. So is that plural marriage? I don't know. Is it? <laughs> In principle, we still believe that a person can be sealed to more than one other person. Oh, okay. I see. The latest handbook of the church indicates that a deceased woman who was married to several people can be sealed to them as well. Mm. And so... When you believe in eternal marriage, you believe marriage lasts beyond this life, that opens the door to some complicated things. Yeah. And that complexity is something we've got to be okay with. Yeah. I remember President Oaks being asked, because he's also in that situation, right? Yeah. He's sealed to two women, and he was asked, what's life going to be like in the next life when you're married to two women? And he said, I honestly have to say, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work. All I know is that we've made those covenants and that there are promises associated with those. And I don't know what the arrangement's going to be like in the next life. So I like to just assure my students that there's ambiguity here and uh, we just got to be careful how we might picture the next life in circumstances such as President Oaks and President Nelson. Because as President Oaks said, he doesn't even know what it's going to be like. And if he doesn't know, then I don't think it does us any good to pretend like we do, you know? Yeah. We just know it's going to turn out well for covenant keepers. And I'm talking about everyone involved, the men and the women, Mm -hmm. everybody. Things turn out well for those who keep covenants with Jesus Christ. I'm convinced of that. Yeah. The manifesto is issued, but... Certain members of the church have questions, and some are still performing new plural marriages in Mexico and Canada, and there's even a record of a handful that take place in America. 
So the catalyst to issue the second manifesto, which is the final end for plural marriage in the church, is that Reed Smoot, who is a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, but also monogamous, is elected to the United States Senate in 1903. And this leads to the Reed Smoot hearings, which go on. I mean, the guy gets elected in 1903 and isn't formally uh, seated in the Senate until 1907 because the hearings go on for four years. Wow. And the hearings also expose this difficulty in ending the practice of plural marriage. Like Joseph F. Smith is asked to come to the stand and openly admits that he is still cohabitating with some of his wives and has had children with them. And he's the president of the church, right? Yeah, he's the president of the church. Mm. I'm on his side here. Like, honestly, he says when he's asked, why are you doing this? This is the answer he gave. I simply took my chances preferring to meet the consequences of the law rather than to abandon my children and their mothers. And I have cohabitated with my wives, not in a manner that I thought would be offensive to my neighbors, but I've acknowledged them. I've visited them. They have borne me 11 children since 1890. And I have done it knowing the responsibility and knowing I was amenable to the law. So this is another case where he's saying, I'm not going to abandon my wife and children that I've already made covenants to because of the law. And this whole exchange, oh my goodness, it's such a thing. At BYU, we have the Reed Smoot papers, and Reed Smoot kept a very detailed scrapbook of the newspaper articles about him. It was everything, including a paper that basically showed the temple clothing and the temple ordinances in its front page. But it seems like a lot of the questions were centered around, has the church actually stopped practicing plural marriage? There was an exchange between Joseph S. Smith and one of the senators. So the senator says... Now I will illustrate what I mean by the injunction of Scripture, what we call the New Testament. President Smith said, that's our Scripture also. The senator, kind of surprised, goes, that's your Scripture also? Yes, sir. Then the senator says, the apostle says that a bishop must be sober and must be the husband of one wife. And Joseph S. Smith's reply was, yes, at least. (laughs) That was basically the whole exchange that happens in the Senate. At least one wife. (laughs) At least one wife. And so, as a result of this, Reed Smoot and Joseph S. Smith work together. And they eventually produce what's known as the Second Manifesto. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of the manifesto with teeth, with a method of enforcement. It also clears up that ambiguity of, are we just doing this to obey the law, and therefore it doesn't apply in other countries? Or is the church ending the practice of living plural marriages? And when you say teeth, you're saying that this one, if you practice, then excommunication will be the consequence, correct? Yeah, yeah. Here is the text of the Second Manifesto. Joseph F. Smith reads, April 1904, inasmuch as there are numerous reports in circulation that plural marriages have been entered into, contrary to the official declaration of President Woodruff of September 24, 1890, commonly called the Manifesto, which was issued by President Woodruff and adopted by the Church at its General Conference October 6, 1890, which forbade any marriages violative of the law of the land, I, Joseph F. Smith, President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, hereby affirm and declare that no such marriages have been solemnized with the sanctioned consent or knowledge of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I hereby announce that all such marriages are prohibited, and if any officer or member of the church shall assume to solemnize or enter into any such marriage, he will be deemed in transgression against the church, will be liable, and be dealt with according to the rules and regulations thereof, and excommunicated therefrom. Bam. So now, if you perform a new plural marriage, you're going to be excommunicated. And this basically gives them the method to, within a generation or so, have plural marriage gradually end within the church. As a way of illustrating it, two apostles, John W. Taylor, this is the son of President John Taylor, and Matthias Cowley were both removed from the Quorum of the Twelve. They both voluntarily 
resign. In fact, in the Smoot papers, their resignation letters are there. But there's no better way to illustrate how serious they are. Yeah, within a day of each other. Yeah, that's true. Yep. So after the second manifesto is issued, and it's very clear that this is church-wide, and it is an excommunicable offense if you enter into new plural marriages, you have two apostles who say, okay, if that's the terms and conditions, then I tender my resignation. Correct? Yeah. That's their language. I tender my resignation from the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Yeah, this is the letter John W. Taylor writes, I find that I've been out of harmony with the set authorities as to the scope and meaning of the manifesto issued by President Woodruff. Inasmuch as I have not been in harmony with my brethren on these subjects and have been called into question concerning them, I now submit myself to their discipline and save further controversy and tender my resignation and hope for such clemency in my case as they may deem right and just and merciful. And he is eventually excommunicated from the church. Matthias Cowley, who submits his letter the exact next day, is not excommunicated from the church. I gave a presentation once where I said they were both excommunicated, and I had some Matthias Cowley descendants come up and correct me. (laughs) That was tough, but I don't want to get him in trouble. (laughs) This allows Reed Smoot to be seated in the Senate. In fact, a lot of people point out that Reed Smoot doesn't practice plural marriage. One senator from Pennsylvania gets up and points out that some of the men who are accusing Reed Smoot of being a polygamist aren't faithful to their wives. In fact, he has the classic quote. He says, I'd rather have seated beside me in this chamber a polygamist who doesn't polyg than a monogamist who doesn't monog. (laughs) And Wait, so I got to unpack that. So (laughs) I'd rather be seated next to someone who's accused of polygamy, but who's actually true to his one wife than someone who claims monogamy but is actually unfaithful to his one wife. These other politicians I'm sitting with, that's so good. And this is a big deal because what's at stake in the Reed Smoot trials is whether a Latter-day Saint can ever be seated in the Senate. Mm. Prior to this time, you had B.H. Roberts, who was elected to the House of Representatives. He is a polygamist. He's not allowed to take his seat. George Buchanan was elected as a non-voting representative, wasn't allowed to take his seat either. Mm. Reed Smoot breaks that barrier. And there we are now where... A couple years ago, a Latter-day Saint man was nominated for president of the United States. There's no barrier anymore. Yeah. We should probably point out that this is not going to sit well with a certain segment of Latter-day Saints, right? There's going to be a group that's going to break off from the church, actually, on this in 1912. A guy named DeLauren C. Woolley, a member of the church at the time, he purported that there was an 1886 revelation to John Taylor, and they saw that President Woodruff's manifesto went against that revelation. And so they're going to make a case in 1912 that Wilford Woodruff was basically a fallen prophet, and that they were going to continue with the fundamental practice of plural marriage. They'll call it the principle. And so this is where we're going to get the FLDS church, right? That's a breakoff in essentially 1912, the FLDS Church, Fundamental Latter-day Saints. And that's actually interesting and insightful, right? When You remember when Wilford Woodruff was wrestling as the revelations were coming, the Lord saying, think about which one's better to give up, right? In other words, which one's more fundamental? Temple practice, the ordinances of the temple, or plural marriage? Right. President Woodruff understood by revelation that temple was more fundamental. But this other group is saying what's fundamental is plural marriage. Yeah. That's how we get this break off, and that's going to lead to the continuation of the practice of plural marriage 
even to this day with some groups. And that's why there's still rumors that we're guilty by association with them, that they're FLDS and we're LDS. And so many people misunderstand. We would love if that went away. Yep. But they head down to a place called Short Creek down on the border. Is that by Arizona, border of Arizona? Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's a, a whole other hour or two hours of discussion of all of that. But I think it's helpful for our listeners to know that this is where the FLDS church came from. Is right after this second manifesto, it became very clear that there was no room whatsoever anymore for plural marriage to continue to happen in the church. And so that's when they made their break. Yeah. And I mean, with these groups coming out of the woodwork in the early 20th century, the first presidency does issue a statement. Yeah, explicitly about them. Yeah, that one of the things they say is this. No one better knew the principle regarding authority for the sealing power than President John Taylor, and he would not have attempted to violate it. It's sacrilege to his memory, the memory of a great and true Latter-day Saint, a prophet of the Lord, that these falsehoods should be broadcast by those who profess to be his friends while he lived. They also point out that at President Taylor's death, the keys of the sealing ordinances, this is this 1933 First Presidency Statement, with their powers and limitations passed by regular devolution in the way and manner prescribed by the Lord and in accordance with the custom of the church to President Woodruff. Yeah. So President Woodruff has the keys that John Taylor had, and he's the one that gave the declaration, and that's that. Boy, and that's such an important principle. Maybe this is a good place to land our discussion today is this idea of the keys. And this 1933 statement of the First Presidency, this is President Heber J. Grant is the president of the church at the time. And this claim that continues to be made that Wilford Woodruff violated John Taylor's revelation somehow, which, by the way, you can look at that revelation, you can find it online, and there's nothing in there that goes against the manifesto. But that's the claim they made. But this point about the keys, I think this is the crucial thing. And I try to emphasize this with my students as we're talking about this principle, just to say the key issue in all of this is the key issue, right? Yep. Plural marriage was begun by Joseph Smith, who was acknowledged explicitly in section 132 as the one man on earth who held the keys of the kingdom, the keys of the sealing power that can authorize this kind of thing. And then in 1890, the one man on earth who had the keys of the sealing power, the keys of the kingdom, discontinued the practice. Mm -hmm. The key thing is the key thing. In fact, Lorenzo Snow, when he put this in 1890 for the vote of the Latter-day Saints to accept as binding, he said this, listen to this language. I move that recognizing Wilford Woodruff as the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the only man on the earth at the present time who holds the keys of the sealing ordinances, we consider him fully authorized by virtue of his position to issue the manifesto. So anytime you see someone going against the one that's got the keys of the ordinances, objecting, rejecting them, calling them fallen prophets, that's instantly a red flag area. Yeah. That 1933 statement from the First Presidency emphasizes keys. I want to count them one, two, three, four, five times in just a few paragraphs. Mm -hmm. I'll just read a little bit. There has been no change in the law of succession of the priesthood and of the keys appertaining thereto, nor the regular order of its descent. President Grant today is the only man on the earth at this time who possesses these keys. He's never authorized anyone to perform polygamist or plural marriages. He's not performing such marriages himself. He's not violating the pledge that we made to our government at the time of the manifesto, right? So the only one who can authorize or deauthorize, who can commission or decommission the practice of plural marriage is the one man on earth who holds the keys of the kingdom. And Joseph Smith was authorized to begin it. Wilford Woodruff was authorized to begin its end, and Joseph F. Smith was authorized to officially end it. 
And Heber J. Grant was authorized to officially say, no, for reals, for reals, for reals. The issue is the keys. Yeah. And the key holders have been very clear on this. And so if we just keep our eyes riveted on the keys, they might take us on a ride. In the 1830s, 40s, uh, plural marriage might be introduced. But then in the 1890s, we might take a 180 degree turn and it might be discontinued. And that's totally fine because it's the one who holds the keys who's doing that. Yeah. I think that's the important principle here for me. Yeah. Challenging issues linked to discipleship, but also a clear thread of the person that has the keys gets the revelation to initiate, end, or whatever with the practice. That's right. The keys today are with Russell M. Nilsson. The sealing keys that were used to seal me to my wife continue on the earth today, and that's the person that we look towards to, to get our direction and guidance from Jesus Christ. Yeah. Tons of stuff. Like, oh my gosh, we've done five hours on this. We could probably do 15 hours more easy <laughs> and then keep going. But we thank you for hanging in with us as we've discussed this challenging and difficult topic. Look for more resources on DoctrineCovenantCentral.org and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Church History Matters. Next week, we wrap up this series by responding to your questions about plural marriage in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we will be honored to have with us Dr. Brian Hills as our special guest to help us respond to your questions. He's a scholar of all things related to plural marriage in the church, and you're not going to want to miss it. Today's episode was produced by Scott Woodward and edited by Nick Galetti and Scott Woodward with show notes and transcript by Gabe Davis. Church History Matters is a podcast of Scripture Central, a nonprofit which exists to help build enduring faith in Jesus Christ by making Latter-day Saints scripture and church history accessible, comprehensible, and defensible to people everywhere. For more resources to enhance your gospel study, go to scripturecentral.org, where everything is available for free because of the generous donations of people like you. Thank you so much for being a part of this with us. Mm-hmm.